Excuse me, sir. Could I see your passport, please? Yeah, boy. For sure. Oh, thank you, Mr. Uh, Hamilton. What's the problem, wiki-wiki-wah-wah? Well, sir, I noticed you came through the EU arrivals channel. Yeah, homie. No diggity, no doubt. Well, I'm afraid I can't let you back into the country, sir. Why not, dude? Well, sir, it's just that your accent appears to be from outside the EU. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. He's Zog. Hello. He's Richard. Hello. I'm Gareth, and this is the first episode of On Speed recorded on our new recorder, so it may sound a little bit different. And it's the first episode of the year recorded with the windows open here, so you can probably hear birds. Can we hear the birds? Yeah. That was right nice on day, cue. That was nicely done. Yeah. Yeah. So it's our one day of summertime. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. All over tomorrow. Yeah. I think the birds singing signals a new dawn for Formula One, whereby at last we have a championship, as opposed to just Nico walking oh, I it. I see what you did there. Very good. It's the truth. Yeah. It's yeah. the truth. The championship is back, as you say. Yeah, yeah. it's come alive again. You and know, Richard was there to see it. Oh, you lucky bugger. Well... How much of the race did you actually see from your oh, all of it. yacht? All of it. Really? But, but on the Italian TV coverage that was on, it's a long story, but I went to Monaco, I watched the race. There's no way of saying this that doesn't sound a bit showy-offy. I watched the race from a yacht in the harbour, but a yacht in the harbour at Monaco is a very bad place to see the Monaco Grand Prix from. You see flashes of Although the cars going Although still not an entirely bad place to be oh, for a weekend. It I was mean, you know, another, you're not getting any Another espresso here. martini, sir. Yeah, don't mind if I do. Mm. Um, oh, actually, no, because it's mid-afternoon now, isn't it? I'll have a Negroni. We were kept boozed we're and getting fed quite well, and we had, for some reason, the Italian Sky F1 channel on a telly just inside... Uh, I don't know what the names of the decks are, but anyway, sort of, let's call it the poop deck. I was standing on there, you could see a big screen above the track in Monaco itself, and then you could see flashes of the cars go by, but if it was getting a bit hot, or actually as it was on race day, a bit rainy, go inside, there was a big telly Have showing the race. And then, so, exactly, yeah. yeah, nothing can't be made better by having another Negroni. I was driving or operating heavy machinery, I'd imagine. But I wasn't doing either of those things. And then we had the Radio 5 live commentary on, but there's a flaw in all of this. Which is? I was, I think, the only British person on the yacht. Everyone else on the yacht, all, I think, about 60 or 70 people, Australian. OK. Now, so there will have come a point in this race, if I'm remembering correctly the way yes, things played out, that a large got, group of Australians might yes, become unhappy. Became rather awkward. Mm. Might take against an English person. I, Maybe. I'm well, just, put it this no. way. I briefly considered that my best option would be throwing myself overboard oh. and swimming for safety. But actually... The Australians were all very nice. So there was a lot of good-natured ribbing, but it was still a little bit awkward because I was thinking, oh, no, I kind of want Hamilton to win. I like Ricardo a lot. I made this very clear to the Australians how much I like <laughs> Ricardo. Something brilliant happened as well. When we were on our way to the yacht on a race morning. We were on the little boat that was taking us from a harbour around the corner round into the main Monaco harbour. Mm. And we saw Ricardo and Max Verstappen walking down the quayside to their swishy Red Bull tender that was taking them round to wherever they were going to get to the track. Yeah. And I was on a little boat full of Australians. So, of course, they went bananas and started going, Dan, Dan, Dan like Australian Alan Partridge. And, <laughs> and it, he didn't paying attention and then one of the blokes behind me on this little boat just went Aussie 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 
And Ricardo turned around and gave him a massive wave. And of course, Excellent. then they went absolutely bananas yeah. and the thing was <laughs> rocking all over the shop. And it, was just, it was joyful. It was I'm really sure. cool. Yeah. And I was with them because I like Ricardo. I think he's a, good, yeah. he's a good bloke and he's a great driver. So he's got both of those things going on. But... Yeah. When Hamilton took his place to lead the race, it was a bit like, oh, ooh. I'm, I'm just going to slip off this Yeah, I'm going to go hide quietly, behind his yeah. curtains. Yeah. Contrasting your utter luxury in a $14 trillion Australian dollar yacht in Monaco, I didn't actually watch the race. I listened to it on the radio because I was in the middle of a field in Somerset at an event that I was at last weekend. And I quite enjoy listening to... F1 on the radio these days. No, the pictures are better on radio, they the say. Five Live coverage is very good. Yeah, say, yeah. They build excitement really well. And it was a proper exciting race. I didn't see any of it. When you say you saw flashes of the car, Richard, could you actually see the circuit itself? Or was it sort of in the distance? Were you adjacent to it, like up against the Yeah, fence? but there's barriers. Yeah. So as they came round the swimming pool, you got just about a clear line of sight over the barriers. Mm. see them flash through mm. and then you got a little gap sort of further around by the chicane where you could just about see through between boats and things to see them but yeah quite honestly not the best place to see a race no but no, I don't think anywhere really is at Monaco. You, you don't go there to see the I was the looking race. at the people no, in the grandstands, and, and they've got some... a great view of them coming round through the sort of harbour complex. Mm. Yeah. But then... And there are on... some sort of hotel rooms and yeah, some, park, yeah. oh, and some every balcony that's got even know, a really vague good views, view of the track but... has got people crammed yeah. onto it. But the grandstands looked like you had to be pretty hardcore, because on Saturday for qualifying, you got baked to death because it was incredibly hot and incredibly mm. sunny and then on Again, Sunday you these got people soaking not wet. getting any sympathy you know as I sipped another cocktail thinking I'm glad I'm on this yacht and not in those grandstands getting hot slash soaking wet mm. oh, no, fair enough maybe just a more generous hearted person no I'm not I'm, than uh, me I'm, I'm, I'm just I, I didn't offer to take them a drink or anything like that because there were loads of them and frankly <laughs> screw them uh, <laughs> do you know the funny thing is actually just about my Australian yacht that as soon as the race finished I had to go because I had a flight and because of everyone trying to get out of Monaco after the race it was just prudent for me to jump on this little dinghy and be taken round to where a taxi was waiting to take me to the airport because I didn't want to miss my flight mm. but it did I suppose look to the Australians like I was running away because I pretty much just went <laughs> yeah. oh anyway well bad luck guys I've got to go bye and then I ran off down the gangplank but in sympathy with these kind and generous Australians who fed and watered you on the boat mm. wrong result for them on the day but the right result for us really I mean for us I mean F1 fans because it helps Lewis's cause to keep the championship alive the most embarrassing thing that happened at the race for me was Lewis greeting Justin Bieber did you see come you back look- Vladimir Putin all is forgiven <laughs> <laughs> really oh yeah no but, that was well, he's, he's that evil was, that was and he's lo- brought misery to millions and, 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 and so and is Putin Richard is going to be Richard's here all week tell your friends I mean now you know we love Lewis and we're also very critical of him but really, Justin Bieber, mm. Lewis, come what, what on. You, you know, if it was a member of Killing Joke, he'd get my respect. If it was, I don't know, anyone but Justin Bieber, he'd get my respect. But Justin Bieber, yeah, absolutely. come on. Oh, I know. I know. Is he nine years old, Lewis? Is that why Bieber's there? I, I don't know. So I've got a Bieber uh, bonnet about this. No, not here. I'm on the same page. But yeah, moving swiftly on. I mean, no, 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 no. but yeah, no, the great thing is the championship is back on. If that race had gone the other way, if, if there'd been yet another race where Rosberg just 
got it absolutely right, drove perfectly. Lewis had a bit of difficulty, tripped over a little something here and there, a little on-track incident. And if we'd had another race like the last seven, it would be looking pretty one-sided. Well, But I, it's all back on. I've um, noticed that I'm changing how I'm watching F1 this year because there are... 702 races in this season is that right that's mm, what the season mm-hmm. is now extended to I'm less critical about whether I can watch the race on TV or not I'm much happier to listen to it on the radio oh, I don't really I'll catch the next one you know because there are so many I realise I can't block out that amount of time to watch all of them but the consequence of that was I was less invested in F1 this year than I have been previously but now that the championship's back on, I'm thinking, oh, God, right, I'm going to be at Le Mans you really doing want to the see Baku yeah, race. Yeah, yeah. How am I going to watch that? Because it's going to be in the build-up to the start of the, the big race. Yeah. Yeah. What it, time is the Baku race? I think it's one o'clock, isn't it? Is it? Normal I think sort of so, time. yeah. Okay. I think so. So we've yeah. got two hours where we're usually singing all the anthems in the stands in the yeah. build-up to the Le Mans 24 hours. We may have to go and watch a race. I can't do it. No way. Yeah, no, be, no, 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 no. The, the build-up is going to be qualifying. Yeah. Oh, but of course. It's yeah. Saturday, the Baku Sunday, race, if it's on at Thank one, you. might yeah. overlap into the... Um, oh, wait. France, one hour ahead. I can't do the maths on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the finishes oh. of both races, potentially at the same time, is where I'm going with this, but I can't You'd have the thought the FAA would have considered uh, this. Wouldn't so the F1 race starts at... No, actually, the F1 race starts at one UK time, two French time. Yeah. And the Le Mans race will finish at three French time, so Le Mans will finish and Baku will still be going. Oh, so there'll be, an, a, there'll be a bit of rain. Weird, mm. isn't it? But you might then catch the end of the race on uh, a big screen somewhere. Uh, or maybe it'll be... Uh, we'll, well, we'll work that we'll out. We'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure um, it out. Quickly, but, while we're talking about F1, there have been a couple of announcements about the development of the 2017 car, and it looks like they're going to adopt the halo. Have you heard this? Mm. The halo device will become the de facto head protection system in Formula One. Do you like it better than the screen, Richard? Yes or no? No. Do you like it better than the screen, Zog? Yes or no? I don't think so, no. I think I prefer the screen. Yeah, the screen yeah. looked cool. I thought it made the cars look a little bit like little Spider- spider jets. Yeah, 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 they do. Yeah, and they the do. halo is so ungainly. It looks and like a flip-flop. Have you yeah, seen it? Yes. Exactly like I a mean, flip-flop. I'm not sure quite how firmly written the rules are about what that halo has to look mm. like. You know, in other words, are they all going to look like the halos we've seen already? Is there going to be a bit of leeway for just how the teams construct those. Maybe they'll look a little bit better than what we've seen so far. What I don't quite understand about this is I know that there's a sound safety reason for it, but if we think about the worst incident in Formula 1 in recent memory, it was obviously Jules Bianchi, and I know that was a freak accident, but I don't think a halo or an aero screen would have done much to stop that given the forces involved. From the what halo I, might, but not the screen. But you're right. I think you're right. The anchors accident involved enough energy that either of those protection devices wouldn't have made a huge difference, I think. But what do we know? Well, there'll yeah. always be something that can get there by any safety. I mean, there will, you yeah. know, there F1 will. has become immeasurably more safe than it was 20, 30 years ago. Definitely 40, certainly. You know, It was just accepted that someone would probably die each season mm. in the 70s, the 60s before that. I can't understand how the drivers get out quickly. You know, there's that mandated thing. They have to yeah. be able to get yeah. out of the car in some sure. time. Yeah. Surely that halo is getting right in the way of that. Maybe there's some kind of quick release. Or there's a hinge. Maybe there's some kind of... Uh, as long as it's hinging. tethered at the front, you know, if you can flip it, you can get out. Mm. I, would, I would imagine if it's not restricted in the hinge. I don't know. But no one else seems to have been able to come up with a better proposition mm. than the windscreen or the halo. I think we may be stuck with it. I'm, I go with it. I'm cool with it. 
It they, just looks horrible, doesn't it? And I just It I, doesn't look good, no. I doubt it's more important than that, but it's also not. I was watching some old F1 stuff. I was watching just a compilation of stuff on the telly the other day and these different eras of cars and you remember how some of them were really horrible and some of them are incredibly pretty. And mm-hmm. historically it sort of seems like cars have got uglier and uglier. But actually I think these current cars are better looking than the cars of say five years ago when the they high nose. Yeah, very high nose, yeah. bulky, yeah. ungainly yeah. looking cars. Yeah. And I think can hold a candle to some of those very elegant, lovely sort of seventies and early eighties cars, the Williams and all of those. Ferraris, Villeneuve's Ferrari, very pretty car and all of these things. But the Halo is just willfully horrid looking Mm. and and ungainly and... I don't like it. <laughs> so there we go. I'm I sure the FIA are furiously taking notes about this as we speak. Tell you Julie what, knows. if I had a Formula One team of my own name, I would have no problem having a halo on it. Think about that one. Nico Rosberg. How did you feel letting Lewis Hamilton through during the Monaco race? Well, for sure, uh, totally happy about this. You didn't mind that he had greater performance during that Grand Prix? No, for sure. I I was pleased to see that he had more speed than me. And you don't think that this has harmed your championship chances? No, for sure. I'm thinking only about the good of the Mercedes team. Okay, Nico. Thanks for your time. You can put your helmet back on now. It won't fit over my nose. Come on, Nico. Back in your box. Okay, Papa Chipetoto. Last weekend, I did something. In fact, I did two things I'd never done before. One was to go to a festival as a punter. I have never been to a festival as a punter. Which one? It was called Shindig Weekender. It was a sort of a dance, DJ, rave, rap, funk festival. No live bands, all DJs. When I was a roadie for five years, I vowed I would never, ever go to a festival as a punter. Because when you work at those things and you see people up to their testicles in mud, you think those poor people. But I decided to do it. I was offered the opportunity, so I went for it. It was great. So that was the one thing I've never done before. And the second one was I drove there in a hydrogen fuel cell car. Now, I know I've talked a lot about hydrogen fuel cell cars on this show recently because there's been a lot of stuff happening, but I was given the opportunity to borrow the Hyundai iX35 FC and take it on a practical experience, really, because the stuff I did before that record was sort of driving on a closed loop around Mm. the M25. It just kept stopping at the Heathrow point and refilling it. But this, I stopped at the Heathrow point and refilled it and drove to Somerset. And I think in doing so, may have taken a hydrogen fuel cell car further west than it has ever been in this country before. <laughs> Is this a record that Guinness I, keeps track of? Internationally recognised. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. It'll be from page to papers tomorrow, you can guarantee it. But just to say, you know, I believe in lecky cars. We believe in lecky cars, don't we? Yeah, well, I remember driving that Hyundai a couple of years ago, and it's good. I liked it. And it works. It absolutely works. There was never any lack of power. There was always that lovely refinement that you get from Alecky cars. Refueling. It's quite cool. You've got the convenience, the great thing of being able to refill at a pump. Yes, yeah. and quickly. But there is the issue for me about the viability of hydrogen infrastructure. Of you know, making the, the hydrogen. The question of yeah. whether that's the best way to go, how well you can build up that kind of infrastructure. And the energy efficiency of it is maybe an issue, depending on how you're making your hydrogen. Yeah. But that's a big, complicated issue that I don't know enough about, frankly. I, mean, I am a bit interested in it, but I don't know as much about it as I would like. Someone I know was telling me the other day, I think it's Leicester University, have made a major breakthrough about storing hydrogen on carbon cards, effectively. And Using carbon 
carbon nanotubes we, yes. or graphene. Where now, it, where it the attaches person who was telling about this was quite drunk and couldn't remember enough of the details to make this a fully formed piece of information, but it was interesting nonetheless what they were trying to tell me, and I meant to look it up afterwards to see if, mm. in fact, they were talking rubbish, but I haven't had a chance to. But it sounds well, very exciting. And his argument was, well, you know, this is it. These are the kind of breakthroughs that we might need to be able to ship energy around in the form of mm. hydrogen and places like Iceland where they have a great capacity to generate energy through geothermal power and then yeah. crack it into hydrogen. Yeah. But then it's hard, not impossible, but it's a bit of a pain to ship it. Mm-hmm. Could be the key to this. Well, having made a load of hydrogen, if you compress it and then decompress it again, you lose a fair bit of energy in that process. It's not 100% efficient and you have to put a fair amount of energy in to do that to compress compression. It. You don't get it all back when you yeah. decompress it again. Whereas if you take that electricity and put it into a battery, you get something like 90 or 95% back of the energy that you put in. But you have to so, lug a very heavy battery around with you. And I think the combination of a fuel cell and a hydrogen tank is lighter. Yeah, and that's an interesting point because you get some interesting advantages from combining two storage technologies or two mm-hmm. power technologies. For example, with a fuel cell vehicle, if you have supercapacitors as part of the system, those can be used to give you a high-power, high-current burst of power when you're accelerating and then your fuel cell can produce the lower power output that you need to keep going when you're on the flat that's the principle in which the river simple rasa works exactly exactly and i think the lightweight hydrogen fuel cell car is a beautiful elegant idea but the hyundai thing that i was driving is it's like victorian engineering just build the same thing but bigger and bigger and bigger and that's also appealing the hydrogen tank is mostly carbon fiber if i remember right it is yeah yeah I was worried, though, if, if there's an explosion in a hydrogen tank, you don't get a mushroom cloud, do you, unless it's a fission reaction, do you? Well, be... <laughs> I think technically you, you get a mushroom cloud out of any sufficiently big explosion. OK, that, uh, thank you, uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, so that was my drive in a hydrogen fuel cell car with a range of 300 miles. Pretty and good. Absolutely, 300 miles, keeping pace with the motorway traffic. Got there, got back with 80-something miles left in the tank. Uh, you know, practical. It does work. So that's what I did for a drive. What did you do for a drive, Richard, recently? I bet uh, you haven't done anything as exciting as a hydrogen fuel cell car. I went for a drive yesterday, and I just went for a drive, which I always think is a bit weird. You know, motoring organisations, sort of if there's a fuel crisis or something, or if yeah. it's just bad weather, they'll go, trying to avoid unnecessary journeys. Oh, yeah. Essential journeys mm-hmm. only, yeah. What unnecessary journeys? <laughs> Who's making unnecessary journeys as a matter of course? They go, oh, I was going to make an unnecessary journey tomorrow. I was just going to drive to Reading and back for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> and it doesn't happen. But I did go for a drive yesterday, the reason being I've got the new Porsche 718 Boxster on oh, test. Ooh, nice. And I wanted to go out and see what it was like on some nice open country roads. So I drove into the countryside and I drove it around for a bit and I had the roof down because it was warm but cloudy, which is quite nice. And I thought, I'll put the roof up because I think sometimes your judgment gets impaired a little bit by having the roof down, the novelty of going, oh, wee, wee, yeah, you, my just, you just have too much fun. Yeah, the thing is, it was too nice and I was like, I don't want to put the roof up because it's just nicer with the roof down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And why not? What's going on with the numbers thing with Porsche at the moment? Because the 718 is shared across two models in the Porsche range, isn't it? Yeah. Is the KM the 718 as well? Cayman. 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 Yes. 718. Because they're the same car, the Cayman is just the Boxster Coupe, but they've decided that they'll try and sort of make that association in people's minds. They will be brought together under the 718 umbrella, but then they're still calling it the 718 Boxster and the 718 Cayman. And I think those names are so well established. 
A lot of car makers would kill came, for... Yeah. yeah. But the car makers would kill for name recognition mm. at the level of the Boxster. Everyone knows a Boxster. Absolutely. So sticking the number in front of it, mm. no-one's going to use that number. I well, think if they'd gone, well, they're not the Boxster anymore. It's a 718 Roadster it's a se- and a 718 well, Cooper. Well, I think that's what they're trying to do, isn't it? Well, no, because they're still using the original names as well. Well, they, they do with the 911. You think about it, the 911 is the 911 Targa, the 911 GT3. The 911 is like the sub brand. Yeah, but the 911 was always the 911, and then they just append names onto the end of it. And actually, fundamentally, the 911 Cooper and the cabriolet are just they don't have badges that say that mm. they are all 911s mm. and, they just and this is a bit like yeah. they've sort of retrofitted a number into a car that already has a perfectly good and very recognisable name but it's interesting it's it's odd. A, yeah it's quite true that Boxster and Cayman are very well established brands in the car world now the 718 heritage that they're drawing on here is something that is really a great little bit of motoring history to bring back but it's car geek stuff. It's yeah. hardcore, not mass market. That's kind of interesting. I guess they're obviously wanting to draw some more benefit from their heritage of motorsport and sports mm. car design. It's just very interesting that they're putting 718 in the names of those cars. Do you know what's it's funny? A- the press car that I've got is just badge 718. That's really? all it says on the back. It doesn't mm-hmm. say Boxster, and it's actually an oh. S. It doesn't say Boxster S like they used to. It yeah. just says 718. But I looked at the spec sheet for that particular car and lists all the options... And the 718 badge is listed as a no-cost option. So I don't know what oh. you get if you don't ask for that. Whether it just says Boxster Box Or 718 yeah, Boxster or 718 Boxster Porsche have I gone badging crazy. Mm-hmm. You know how they used to barely put badges on their cars? Yeah. Now all of their cars have Porsche in that sort of double-spaced uh-huh. font. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, if you buy a 911 Targa... I think you can get it where it's basically it's like it's longer than the opening line of most pop songs. It's something like 911 Carrera Targa 4S. It's a lot of nomenclature. That's a lot of badges on the back. Yeah. And it actually it's too many. It looks a bit rubbish. Yeah, it's too it's So You um, like the car, though? I like the car. I think it's a very nice car. I've always liked the Boxster. The last Boxster I drove was the same sort of spec for spec because it was a Boxster S manual. And I've always thought that the Porsche PDK gearbox, now it's gone double clutch, mm. is... So good, you would just have PDK in any Porsche mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's great. I'm not sure. I'd forgotten how good the manual gearbox really? is in that car. It's yeah. just the weight and the action of the gear change is beautiful. I know there's a lot of cliches that car journalists use about, you know, rifle bolt action and all that, but it does come as close to any of those things. It's just this beautiful sort of mechanical well, feeling. And it's quite odd because it feels that you're having a significant effect. You are moving mechanical things around, and yet it's quite light. So you can just, again, I hate to use the word stroke it, but you can just stroke it between gears. You just, you've you used it barely, twice now. Barely any pressure, in, and it just moves. And the clutch, the clutch is quite heavy by modern standards but in a way that gives you something to work against and you sort of it's exactly the right way it's something Porsche mm. do very well the weighting of the controls yeah, that absolutely. they are exactly as heavy or as light as you would want them particularly in enthusiastic driving the yeah. brakes are yeah, good yeah. but the brakes really show how good they are when you're really leaning on them and you know some cars they sort of feel like oh actually I'm asking a bit much of the system here mm. That is when the brakes on this Boxster 718, call it what you will, are at their best. Optimised. And also when the pedal is is sort of right down at the right height to be able to blip the accelerator to do a downshift. Although, I then discovered if you put it in Sport Plus mode, it blips it for you. Which feels like cheating, but Mm -hmm. annoyingly the car is better at it than I am. Because it nails it every single time. You know if you're heel and towing and sometimes you don't quite get it right. And it's very satisfying when you do. But occasionally, not enough revs or too many. And the car does it pretty much bob on every time. But it feels a bit cheaty. The big thing with this car is that it's a four-cylinder turbo. No more flat six in the Boxster. It's a flat four. It sounds a bit like a Subaru. Now, well, personally, of course it will. I like that. I like the sound of old Subarus. It's that 
characteristic of a flat four engine with yeah. unequal length exhaust headers, yep. as nerds will confirm. And it sounds, particularly with this one has a sports exhaust, you press the sports exhaust button, make it a bit fruitier, and it makes this nice sort of Subaru-y, sort of lumpy... Blah, 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 blah. Well, you know... The, and the, I like that. There's nothing wrong with a four-cylinder engine. A four-cylinder engine won Le Mans yeah, last year. Exactly. Indeed, yeah. So it's absolutely... I have no complaints about that at all. The weird thing is this four, because it's got a turbo on it, is actually heavier than the old six. So I was hoping, you know, there'd be this new sort of lighter box, but it's not. It actually weighs a tiny bit more. But it drives beautifully. The chassis is absolutely lovely. The ride is really good, really well controlled. And I always think that's the sign of a well-sorted car, that it can still ride well, which means mm-hmm. that on, you know, mid-corner you hit a bump and it doesn't get knocked offline or feel unsettled. Mm-hmm. Plenty of suspension travel. It's, just, it's the damping, I think. It's the, it's, yeah. the, it's the quality of the damping. You put it into sports mode on the chassis, and a lot of cars, they, they go to pieces, they get they too get bit, stiff. Yeah, but, yeah. Because basically it's a marketing exercise. They think the yeah. customer wants to push that button and they want to have their head shaken off their neck just yeah. because, oh, it's so sporty. This, it doesn't make that much difference. The body control gets a tiny bit better. The ride doesn't get much worse at all. And that, I think, is the mark of an engineering decision, not a marketing decision. So my only qualm about this car actually does go back to the engine, not the noise. It's the delivery. It's so even, so torquey. Uh-huh. Tiny bit of lag from the off, but minute and then after that the ECU is obviously massaging the timing and all of the different facets of the engine to make sure that it has a flat torque curve pretty Mm. much and the power delivery is just sort of seamlessly flat and the weirdest thing is you miss the peaky Uh nature of a naturally aspirated engine where you have to rev it you're revving and revving this thing and all you're doing is going faster but there's none of that sudden come on cam kind of behaviour you get from the old boxer engine and from all great normally aspirated engines and that's the bit you miss however as a final Jerry Springer like thought I don't think most customers will give a damn Mm-hmm. Because most customers don't know what a 718 is. They'll just go, ooh, a new box star. I can afford a Porsche. I want a Porsche. They'll probably go PDK because they drive it around town a lot. Even mm-hmm. if they go for the manual, they're in for a treat because it's a bloody lovely gearbox. But it doesn't matter about the engine delivery unless you are an absolute purist hardcore driver. And I think hardcore drivers err towards trying to get a 911. And for the Boxster market, I think they've over-delivered anyway because it's a lovely sports car to drive for, for the most part. But I do miss chasing peak power. You've made me want to give it a try. <laughs> I wish I'd brought it with me, but I've had some drinky drinks, so I've got a cab. It may have a linear torque delivery, that nice little turbocharged flat four, but I bet it wasn't as linear as my electric hydrogen fuel cell car. (laughs) As a physicist, I'm often asked, is there anything darker than a black hole? And actually, yes, there is. There's something so dark, it literally sucks all the known light out of the universe and creates a blackness so infinite and frightening that it's almost impossible for the mind to comprehend. It's when Daniel Ricardo stops smiling. Oh, that's dark. You'd think, as this programme is called Gareth Jones on Speed, we'd only talk about cars. But I reckon we can talk about bikes on the show as well, in a London context, because as any Londoner will tell you, over a certain distance, it's quicker 
on a bike across London than if you did it on public transport or in a car. For instance, I can get to the West End from here on my push bike in about 23 minutes. It's at least double that on the bus. And if I drove, it would take me a month and cost me 4,000 Boris notes. So given that premise that we can talk about bikes, you've been riding your bike in London, haven't you, sir? Yeah, I have. And I've been noticing something that is rather backing up in terms of my personal experience. Some statistics that I'd read recently to do with safety of drivers of different types of vehicles. The couple of closest calls I've had in terms of drivers not being as aware as they should be of what other traffic's around them and them nearly hitting me as a result. Yeah. Which, if you spend a certain amount of time on a bicycle in London, you're probably going to, from time to time, in any city, you're going to have an occasional near miss or, you know, somebody gets dangerously close to you or feels like they do. And my two near misses were both with Toyota Prius drivers. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, there's a statistical reason for that. Well, Were you in the zone, sir? In the congestion in the charging zone? zone? I was not, in fact. Okay. On neither occasion was I in the congestion charging but zone. But these, I will wager you, sir, are taxis. I was about now to they say the may same. well be, they, and they may well be Uber taxis. Yeah. That bit I don't know. I know they were both Priuses. Uh, well, whether be, whether they, they were cabs, not, I don't know. They are they... likely being driven by somebody who's been driving all day, <laughs> and because they are, they're, just, they're, they're constantly working, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. They're just running, running, and running. So they're tired. They're not necessarily paying much attention. They drive probably every day as well, and they're just. But they should Sick be a bit more practiced. They should be a bit better at, when they're about to turn left, about seeing whether there is a brightly dressed cyclist at just about the point where they're going to turn left across the path of that cyclist. Yes. Or, that you know, well, you would think. Yes and no. It's part of your job as a driver to pay attention to what's around you, absolutely. But I think sometimes that cyclists believe that it's their divine right to come streaking through, even when a car is plainly indicating and slowing. Yeah, that's true. And that's true. as part of the general pact that we should have with each other on the roads, there's a little bit of give and take, and that perhaps they could apply their brakes and let the car turn, because otherwise what's the car supposed to do? Sit in the mm-hmm. middle of possibly a main road until the cyclist has gone through on the inside, which I have done. If they're alongside, or oh, yeah, nearest damage yeah. alongside, it's just easier. Let yeah, them yeah. go. Don't inconvenience, because I think that's one of the things, whether anyone's in a car or on a bicycle or a bus, whatever it is, that just that sort of free-flowing movement is what keeps the city going. So you should at and, all and times... And it requires give and take. If you're stopped, absolutely. let somebody else yeah. who's already moving uh, go. I do that yeah, as yeah, a matter yeah, of course. Yeah. If someone wants to turn right and they're coming towards me and it's two lanes... Absolutely, I'll stop and let them go because there's a queue of people behind them. Gareth Jones, keeping London moving since 1990. Absolutely, this this, this, this give and take and this being aware of the needs of other road users, I'm absolutely on the same page with that. You've been knocked off yet? No, no, absolutely not. You're still on your single speed? I'm well, adapted single speed in that uh, it was a single speed, but I must have bored you with the story about how I've, yeah, how yeah, I've replaced yeah. the rear wheel with a two-speed yeah. hub, Yes, yeah. which is working very well, by well, the way. Well, you were going to do it last time you mentioned it on the programme. Right, we well, I, I have put a two-speed rear hub on it, mm. which you change gears with a little back pedal, which takes nice. a bit of getting used to, but, you know, means you're nicely hardware-free on the bike, no extra cables trailing about. Mm-hmm. But, no, it's working out nicely. So who are but the dangerous people? Prius drivers? Prius drivers. And this was interesting because this was my first-hand experience and it seemed to back up some research that I'd just read about how, contrary to what you might think or what a lot of people might think, Prius drivers are amongst the least considerate on the road. They are just about the most likely 
to not give way to be inconsiderate road users. It's not simply this because a, there are an awful lot more Priuses in London no, than no, any other cars no, no, for, for no, the congestion no, charge no, no, reason. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, this was, sure. study, this was a study that's correcting for all those factors, aren't there? Wasn't it? Uh, but that's the thing. But I don't what, think there are many what, Priuses for that reason. I don't think people buy them to dodge the congestion charge because I don't know that many people would sort of buy a car specifically, would they? And there's lots of cars now that duck no, it. I, 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 I don't up think until recently, our, our little no. and now departed Fiat 500 did as well, which was a more sensible commuting car for some. Yeah. who's sort of coming in because it's easy to park and all the rest of it. But I think that the population of London is very, it's mostly very taxi-based, isn't it? Mm. Well, it's partly taxi-based, but it's also partly green consumer based mm. you know you know a lot of people that are buying priuses are doing so because they want a green vehicle and a conspicuously green vehicle but i'll have you a quid that here we go you can tell if a prius is privately owned or a taxi mm. by the color of it mm-hmm. because if it's black or silver or mm-hmm. white which a lot of them seem to be that's a cab if they've gone for one of the jauntier color options could be private privately owned because you don't mm. want to look like a cab i had the new Prius on test the other week and when my wife got in it we'd driven along very short distance when she went I don't like this car uh, and I went why, why, why not and she went because I feel like I'm in an Uber mm. oh, and it's just that like immediate yeah, yeah, association yeah, yeah, yeah. of Prius equals Uber mm. and in London it does funny if it does in Los Angeles as well because when we were there earlier in the year I got a couple of Ubers and they were Prices. Oh, but, but then one wasn't. One was a Chrysler 300C. But this is driven by I'm, a resting aircraft engineer. I wonder how. A the, long story. <laughs> well, yeah, another time. But yeah. I wonder then how the cab thing might might not play in. It was suggested that one of the reasons that Prius drivers tended to be less considerate and ruder than you would think, mm. basically, was that, to put it really crudely, they're feeling pretty smug. They're feeling pretty good about themselves having bought this Prius. Yeah. They've done their bit. So now it's up to you to give way. It's that kind of That's thing. You know, they feel like they're a little bit better than other road users. Now I Therefore, can see a little no? bit of this. Now I can see a little bit of this because the converse is true of what I was saying earlier on. I'm driving the Porsche Boxster at the moment. Now I'm deeply aware. You're feeling guilty, so you're giving way all the time. There are yes, there are uh-huh. people, a lot of give, people give, who think that Porsche drivers, and perhaps even particularly Boxster drivers, and particularly and as particularly yesterday, Richard Porter, the Boxster yeah, driver. Well, I mean, you know, people Let's think be, I'm a. Anyway, but in, a, you. in, a, in a silver Porsche with a bright red interior as yeah. well, which is a separate conversation, but mm. they're going, look at that total knob with his roof down on his car, which I think in this country as well, we react badly to people in convertibles with the roof down because it looks Playing like it's showing off. Mm-hmm. Playing music. I never yeah. play music. Yeah. Yeah, what can't. I realised, for very complicated reasons, on Friday night, I found myself in a pub talking to Nadine out of Girls Aloud, <laughs> the poptacular band of the... Nadine Coyle, is yes, yes, lovely Nadine. She's delightful as well. And suddenly reminded me that I quite like Girls Aloud and I own their greatest hit. And so <laughs> I... You mentioned this fact, fact of all. Well, I had it on and I didn't, because it might have looked a bit stalky. Um, I did that thing that you do, I don't know if you've ever done this before, when you meet famous people, where you have to sort of try and pretend you don't really know that they're famous a bit, because it just makes it awkward if you immediately go, yeah. oh my God, I love your stuff. Yeah. Then they're immediately like, uh-oh, a bit fanish. Yeah, Whereas if you okay, just go, yeah. hi, we're two adults, we're talking about stuff, we were yeah. actually talking about, you know, she, yeah. she, she has a Much happier to engage in conversation. Yeah, mm-hmm. normal conversation. Yeah. She lives quite near where we live. And so that was okay. It's that story of Noel Gallagher. He said he used to meet people at parties, and they go, oh, what do you do? And he'd go, I work in Tesco. they go, no, you don't, you're Noel Gallagher. And he'd go, well, why do you can ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> but the Porsche, I realised I'd got Girls Aloud Greatest Hits on, and once I put the roof down, I turned it off because I just didn't want people to know none of their business, really, but that's how pathetically aware I am of people listening to my music. And I just think people think you're a knob in a Porsche Boxster, particularly with the roof down. They probably do. And yeah. so I'm overly courteous. Correct. Mm. Yeah. I let yeah. everyone yeah. out. 
so and through. Yeah. And if I apply one of those bloody Prius drivers, the if gifts, yeah. if we apply this rule, anyone who drives I don't know a hydrogen fuel cell car with the hydrogen that's been made from renewable energy, you know, the energy used to create the hydrogen, they are going to be the most dangerous person on the road. Watch out, it could be me, yeah. You've been listening to Zog. Goodbye. To Richard Porter. Goodbye. And me, Gareth. Our next show is Le Mans. Richard, you can't do it this year, can you? I can't. Because you're elsewhere. I'm elsewhere. I'm doing a thing at a book festival, so if you find yourself in the Scottish borders on the Sunday of Le Mans and you want to hear an idiot talking rubbish, (laughs) then, well, you can do it on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But if you happen to be in the area, do come down and hear it live. But Zog and I will be at Le Mans. We Uh, will. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm packing already. Yeah, so the next episode of On Speed will be our first Le Mans show from this year. We don't know how many there will be. We don't know what we're going to talk about, but hey. But we know we're going to have a good time. Well, we are. Yeah. As I think the kids say, I am well (laughs) gel. Before we go, I have one slight concern about Le Mans. It coincides with this European football kicking championships that they have. I don't care about that at all. Well, I do because, do you remember a couple of years ago there was some football thing on and the mood in the campsite completely changed. Everyone went into the marquee to bay like a monster and shout football things. And it wasn't a group of intelligent people talking about cars anymore. We've been hijacked by that, so I'm annoyed with that. But given that the Welsh are there and that the Super Furry Animals and Manic Street Beaches have both done football-related songs, that's my excuse for introducing the song in this episode, which is in the style of the Super Furry Animals, or our version, which is the Super Fiery Cannonballs. This is a song about international cooperation. By the way, vote the right way. It's a song about international cooperation called Why Can't We All Just Get Along? See ya. To fly them home If this is the richest sport in the world Why are we broke? Fighting over national anarchy Why can't we all just get along? We're all going to crash Just you wait and see Why can't we all just get along? Please do it.
can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just get along? Fools like us, the fun ones, but we need to send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Ow. <clears throat> Good God. Ooh, can you hear rattling? No, I think that's my headphone cable or someone's headphone cable is, is hitting. It's your cable hitting this cable hitting the mic stands. That's not bringing in, is it? Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed!